Our God and Father, we praise you today. Lord, we glorify you and we honor you and we bless your holy name. We sing for joy for the things that you have done for us. Father, we have gathered in this place to adore you and to worship you and to offer you praises and glory and honor that is due your name. And we want to thank you with sincere hearts of gratitude for the amazing and wonderful things that you have done for us in and through the work of our Lord Jesus. That, Lord, <clears throat> he bore our sins and iniquities in his body on the tree. That he was crucified and died in our place to take upon him the penalty for our sins. That he stands as a substitute in our place and for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be forgiven of all our sins. To have our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. Oh Lord, even more than that, to be adopted into your family as your children and now stand in your favor and in your grace forever and ever and ever. <coughs> to receive the blessed inheritance that you have laid up for us in heaven. And this assured to us by you giving us and sealing us with your Holy Spirit that we are sealed for this day of redemption and kept by your mighty power for this salvation which has been revealed in this last time. And God, we do firmly look forward to that day when we will no longer be subject to sin and death and dying and to the chaos and suffering of this world. But Lord, you shall translate us into glory and give us immortal and imperishable bodies where we shall live together in your presence forever, where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there shall be no more mourning or dying or crying or pain. Oh Lord, we do look to that day eagerly. And we pray, Lord, that even in the midst of the horrendous things we're studying in this section of text, we know that you have a purpose that must come to pass and that the evil of this world must run its course. And so, God, I pray that you give us the eye of faith to see these things and to understand that you are in sovereign and providential control of what is coming upon the world. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to speak your gospel clearly to those around us, that we might snatch some from the fire. O oh Lord, that your word would go forth and <coughs> save their soul from death. We pray, Lord, that you give us opportunity to speak the gospel to people who will be saved. Use us, Lord. We thank you for the great privilege that we have to even be your royal priests, a holy nation of people that belong to you. What privileges we have. We honor you and we bless you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so we are in our text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have been doing a character study on the person of the Antichrist who is mentioned in verse 3 and in verse 4. And in following verses 5 through 12. 
where he's called the man of lawlessness and also the son of destruction. And, of course, as I have said to you several times, when this person is brought up, it brings us into the context of not only the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, because the prophet Daniel had a lot to say about this man. In fact, most of Daniel's book is devoted to prophecies and revelations concerning the, this person who we call the Antichrist, who, who also Daniel describes a lot about the scope and the influence of his work. And uh, so not only are we brought into the context of the Old Testament, but also in other New Testament passages where, uh, of course, Jesus brings up this person and speaks about the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. And then also uh, John writes in his first epistle, about the Antichrist, and he warns that the Antichrist, singular, is coming, and then makes a further statement that even many Antichrists have already come, and gives us some insight into the nature of the Antichrist, that there is a single Antichrist who will come in the future, but yet there are many who possess his spirit in the world now, even as John identifies them as false teachers who went out from among us and denied <coughs> the essentials of the Christian faith. Because this is what he does. He denies the essentials of the Christian faith. That's his work. That's what characterizes his deception. He seeks to mislead people concerning the truth of Christian salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, there is a very uh, clear and comprehensive passage about what the Antichrist does in Revelation chapter 13 where there is this apocalyptic vision that's been given to John that's identifying the Antichrist as the beast who arises out of the sea, who garners the worship of the whole world and sets up both a religious and economic system whereby he implements a system of idolatry and leads the whole world astray. That is except for the saints of God. And of course, this is these very things are mentioned in our text in 2 Thessalonians. And Paul makes some very clear and concise distinctions between the elect people of God and the non-elect people of God, those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. But he also identifies this Antichrist and gives us some very clear and non-apocalyptic language describing his, the scope and influence of what he does. And uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, it's profound that Paul says in verse 5 to the Thessalonians, don't you remember when I was with you, I was telling you these things? <coughs> telling them what things? Well, the context of verses 1 through 4 is dealing with the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, the apostasy of the end time, and the man of lawlessness. Not only that, but the exaltation of the man of lawlessness, exalting himself above every so-called God and setting himself up in the very temple of God and demanding to be worshipped as God. Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't you remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? Now somebody tell me, how long was Paul in Thessalonica talking to the Thessalonian Christians? Three to four weeks, right? Three to four weeks. We have the record of it and 
Acts chapter 17, right? And then, of course, we have some statements in 1 Thessalonians that kind of help us uh, with that as well. But nevertheless, he was only there for, let's say, on, on, the, on the far end, four weeks. But yet in four weeks, Paul had not only evangelized these, these uh, Thessalonian Christians, but given them such a comprehensive theology that he had gone into depth about the second coming of Christ, the person of the Antichrist, the rapture of the church, and the scope and influence of the Antichrist and the things he would do. I think that's a profound <coughs> statement about how comprehensive the apostles' teaching would have been to, to such a church in such a short period of time. <clears throat> the reason I bring that up is I, I frequently feel a little bit of conviction that, you know, I have all you folks gather for a, a class, and here I am just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about these scriptures. And um, I'm not apologizing because I really feel like I'm being led by the Lord to share what I need to share, and I, I'm always in prayer about that. But I think that if I'm going to be with you for 14 years now, here at Heritage, <laughs> that it's a high time that I shared a few of these things and, and in the kind of depth that I have. The last time I taught about these uh, topics and issues here at Heritage in, in, in a lot of depth was a long time ago. Now, I've, I've talked about eschatology a few times, and of course, with some of my men's Bible studies, we've gone through, you know, whole theology sections and eschatology, but... As far as my, my Bible class is concerned, um, the, the last time I talked about eschatology was about three or four weeks. And then before that, maybe a year, two years before that, I talked about it for three or four weeks. And uh, before that, it, 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 uh, it was when we were in a little church building on 4th Street um, about 13 or 14 years ago. And I did a 10-week series on the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church and the person of the Antichrist. And uh, so it's really been a long time. And uh, so I have, uh, as I was studying verse 5 this last week and, and following, and uh, just really felt, uh, you know, an assurance from God that, you know, I'm on the right track. And, and I feel like all of this stuff that's in the Bible... <laughs> about the Antichrist and the second coming and how it relates to what Jesus and Paul and John have all written down and how that's uh, overlaid over the Old Testament revelation from Daniel. It's really important for us to know those things. Or God wouldn't have given us such comprehensive things about it in, in the Bible. And we really need help putting all that stuff together to kind of see how it all kind of flows together. So that's really been my goal. And... Um, Thank the Lord for comforting me that I'm not here beating a dead dog with a stick, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, <clears throat> last week, we got through the notes to the top of page 95, and we were look, we're look, been looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 4, which reads... I'm going to go back to verse 3. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
and I was uh, talking with you last week about the man of lawlessness and the temple of God and what is in view when Paul talks about the temple of God. If you weren't here last week, you want to go listen to that uh, teaching because I put forth a lot of uh, information, uh, which is also in the notes here, but uh, added a lot of things verbally to that study, presenting to you my view of what is, is in view when Paul says the temple of God, which I do not believe in the context of Paul's writing is a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But rather, I think what is in view is the Christian church or the universal and visible Christianity that is in the world. And of course, I kind of described that at length. I did also present the view briefly <coughs> that is held by dispensational premillennialism that the temple of verse 4 is actually a rebuilt Jewish temple. Uh, and I put forth some evidence that they give as to why they would hold that view. And of course, if you're interested in studying that view, uh, there, there are several commentators who give lengthy uh, conversations about it, not only that, many books that have been written about it, uh, if you will. It's also characterized by the very popular study of the end times that's put in the novel form of the uh, Left Behind series of books. In that series of books, is presented the dispensational view. Uh, nevertheless, um, I, I, I spent quite a bit of time right about the middle of page 93 in the notes, moving forward through page 94, and we kind of ended um, <coughs> last week at the top of page 95 where I was discussing the fact that, in my view, the saints of the highest one who are viewed in Daniel's prophecy are not Jews, but they are Christians. Mm -hmm. Christians of this new covenant age of which Daniel is writing about who are the subjects of Antichrist's destruction. Which, of course, there's ample evidence in the New Testament that I have given uh, even last week and will go on to talk some more about. And I gave this handout here, which has two sides. One side says what Daniel says about the Antichrist. The other side is reasons why the saints in Daniel refer to the church. Okay, so I documented some of that stuff for you uh, so that you kind of get an understanding of where I'm coming from with some of these things. <coughs> if you will, that brings us to the notes at the top of page 95, and I'm going to continue on from there. And this, the subject here is I'm still continuing presenting some more uh, data which causes me to hold the view that this temple of God is the, the visible and universal Christian church in the world. <clears throat> so there, top of page 95. Therefore, to summarize this view in the language of our text of 2 Thessalonians 2.4, where Paul describes the Antichrist, the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. It appears as though Paul is using the term temple here to speak in terms of the very locus of the true worship of God, which has now in the New Testament shifted from the temple in Jerusalem to the assembly of the church. 
This is supported by the text in Daniel as the language describing Antichrist's work is clearly focused on the truth and the holy people. <coughs> and the New Testament language speaks of an attack on the Christian faith and the Christian church. The parallels are clear and obvious. So I try to document a few of those. Daniel chapter 8. So here's this vision of Daniel chapter 8. And here's kind of what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks is when you read Daniel, you see Daniel as a Hebrew prophet writing in, in 600 and something B.C. And Daniel's view of what the true worship of God is, is his limited understanding of Judaism. And he doesn't understand the full scope of the kingdom of God that's coming with the first coming of Christ. He doesn't understand that the temple is going to be destroyed by God. He doesn't understand that the Jews are going to be blinded by God so that the times of the Gentiles may be fulfilled. He doesn't understand all of the things that we have that have taken place over the last 2,000 years in the course of history, right? And he doesn't understand the full scope and influence of the kingdom of God that was brought by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So when he gets these visions of things that are happening in the end, it's all in the context of, of a very Ju Judaistic and Hebrew mindset, okay? And what I'm saying is when we go back and read that Old Testament prophecy, we have all of the knowledge of the New Covenant. We have all of the knowledge of the kingdom of God that has come in Christ to understand this language that speaks of a, of a time that is yet even in our future, okay? And so when Daniel makes statements about who the holy people are and the holy covenant, right? Well, that takes on a whole new meaning for us. Amen? Because there's only one holy people in our day and age, family. And there's only one holy covenant in our day and age. And are none of us sanctified by the blood of goats and bulls? Amen? Are you with me? And of course, I've said a lot about that in the past. And I'm, I'm moving on from that. But I'm giving you this background of how we read these prophecies in Daniel 8. <coughs> he says there in uh, verses 11 through 13, it even magnified itself, that is the Antichrist or the little horn, to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now question, what is the truth? In the context of what is something that is yet still going to happen in our future, what is the truth that the Antichrist will oppose? Think about that. He is going to fling this truth to the ground. Writes Daniel. <laughs> then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror. Okay, I'm assuming that's a reference to the abomination of desolation. So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. Now what is the holy place of God in the new covenant age? Right. And uh, so, if you will, I'm showing parallels between some of this language in Daniel and how we look at that with the eyes of a new covenant understanding. He goes on, the angel actually kind of gives him an explanation of these things. In verses 24 and 25, he writes, And his power will be mighty, that is the Antichrist, but not by his own power. Why? 
Because he's, he's going to be empowered by Satan himself, right? And he's going to be given power by God to accomplish his will, right? Uh, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. Now, what did Paul call him? The son of destruction, right? Where did Paul get that information? I'd like to suggest Daniel 8.24. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. It almost reads like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. <laughs> Are you with me? If you're familiar with that context, you kind of see where Paul gets a lot of his data about the Antichrist so that he can just clearly state it in New Testament terms about what this guy will do. He'll cause deceit to prosper. He will prosper and perform his will, and he will destroy mighty men and holy people. That's what this Antichrist will do. Matthew 8, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 8 and following, <coughs> verse 9 and following, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end shall be saved. When Jesus discusses what these days will be like uh, right up to the time of the Great Tribulation period, he describes it as a time of tremendous persecution and that the church itself will be hated by all nations. Why? Because of Christ and because of the name of Christ. And that there'll be a tremendous betrayal and hatred and apostasy from the true faith. And so he says things like, He who endures till the end, he shall be saved. Calling for endurance which sounds like the language of Revelation 13. This calls for endurance, patient endurance on the part of the saints. Right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, another close parallel with these prophecies in Daniel. <clears throat> he says, That is the one, that is Antichrist, who is coming, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now think about this. Do people perish because they don't believe that blood sacrifices in a Jewish temple cover sins? Are you with me? What is it that's under attack by this Antichrist? I'm telling you, it's the truth that saves people in the context of Paul's writing. And why do people perish in this context and under this man's deception? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Right? For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. If you will, those who rejected the gospel and would not repent. <coughs> You recall in Revelation 16, when the wrath of God finally arrives, 
and the bowls of God's wrath are being poured out and one after another bowl is poured out and there's this little statement at the end of the bowl that says, and men still did not repent of their sexual immorality and their magic arts and their drunkenness and, you know, again and again and again and again and again, no matter how much wrath gets poured out on mankind, they are unwilling to repent. You know why? Because they refuse to love the truth and they take pleasure in wickedness. They love their sin more than they love God. And because they continue in their sin, they bring about the wrath of God. In fact, the parallel between Daniel chapter 7 verses 21 through 25 and Revelation verses 13, chapter 13 verse 5 through 7 is very striking and reveals the church as the primary target of his deceiving work. For example, in Daniel 7, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So this little horn of Daniel 7, I'm sorry, the horn, which is a, a power, which in this context is the Antichrist, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until when? Until it came time for the saints to receive the kingdom, when the Ancient of Days comes. Now, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like our whole context, the Second Thessalonians chapter 2, from, from, I'm sorry, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, right? Because this is what Jesus is going to do when he comes with his mighty angel, his blazing fire, dealing out retribution and delivering the church from their persecution. Wasn't that the context of chapter 1, verses 5 through 9? So uh, he goes on, verse 25, Daniel 7. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alteration in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now how long is that? It's three and a half years. It's three and a half years, which it says in Revelation 13, um, 5... Let's read there, Revelation 13, 5 and following. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. Sounds just like Daniel 7, 25. And blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months? That's three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. Now what is that? A tent that Moses made back in the wilderness? <coughs> no. That is, those who dwell in heaven, who are identified in uh, Colossians 3.20 as the church, those whose citizenship as in, is in heaven. He goes on, verse 7, And it was given to him, that is the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. Do you understand what the language of Scripture is saying that this guy will do? And who will be the focus and the target of what he does? Listen, the last verse of Revelation 12 says this, he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That is, 
Those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Then this beast arises out of the sea. And this is what it describes him doing. This is plausible because in order to oppose God and exalt oneself above God in the new covenant age, one must certainly focus their work against the person and work of Christ, the Christian gospel, and seek to deceive concerning the true worship of God, which happens only in the Christian church who are God's only holy people, made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Judaism and even a rebuilt Jewish temple are not God's holy worship, and surely a daily sacrifice of blood in a Jewish temple would be an abomination to God in this new covenant age, of which God has spoken in loud commentary in 70 AD concerning this matter. Further, this view that the temple of God is the church, or more specifically the universal and visible church, Christian church, there is an overwhelming amount of commentators who hold this view. Of, of the over 20 commentators I read on this, as many as 13 of them hold this view and include G.K. Beale, John Calvin, Matthew Poole, Adam Clark, Albert Barnes, Matthew Henry, Thomas Scott, Philip Doddridge, William Burkitt. And Poole asserts that it was also the position of Augustine, Jerome, Hillary, and Chrysostom. Surely this is not proof of itself that the view is correct, but yet another item in consideration of the whole. You see, all of these guys held this same view. What view? That the temple that Paul was speaking of was the Christian church. Which, by the way, in all of Pauline writing, the word temple is always used to refer to the church. Some would argue, except in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Okay? But I'm just telling you, I don't see it that way. I think what, what is, is uh, being said of Paul, he is referring to the location of the true worship of God. And, uh, of course, you understand that during the time that Paul wrote, there was still a temple standing in Jerusalem. There was still a temple standing in Jerusalem. But, of course, we have a historical record that, that shows us very clearly that something has transpired that likely would have horrified Paul. Although it's, it seemed that he had some inclination of the things that were yet coming upon the Jews, even as he spoke of in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Okay, uh, that brings us, uh, we're about a third of the way down on page 96. These are the reasons that I do not prefer the dispensational view of this text about the temple of 2 Thessalonians 2.4. I do agree and affirm with dispensationalism that Israel will be regenerated and saved at the second coming of Christ and receive the promises of land, seed, and blessing from God and enjoy them throughout the millennium and beyond. But with all of this biblical evidence of the church in the great tribulation, I cannot hold a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. So what I'm saying is, if, if I haven't made it clear already, I affirm a lot of the things that dispensationalism holds concerning the end times. We really have a lot, of, we have a lot more in common than we do in, in disagreement. Um, however, when it comes to the rapture of the church, the timing of the rapture of the church, and the scope and influence of the person of the Antichrist, I have a sharp disagreement because I believe the church is here to go through 
the tribulation, which I, I think I've documented abundantly clear. And, and if that doesn't convince you, well, that's okay. You have to be convinced by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Um, however, um, I've tried to set forth plainly why I hold what I hold. And um, I'll, I'll move on from there then. Um, halfway down 96. What then will it look like for the ultimate deceiver, Antichrist, to come and deceive? What will be the focus of his lies and deception? I would like to suggest that he will try to twist and pervert the essentials of the Christian faith, a new gospel, an attack against Holy Scripture, the Bible, a new Christ himself, as he will successfully deceive those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, verse 10, and who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness, verse 12. In fact, the deception will be so powerful because of his power and signs and false wonders and all the deception of wickedness that even the very elect of God would be deceived if it were possible, Matthew 24, 24. But of course it is not possible for the elect to be deceived because God has elected them to salvation and applied this election by regeneration which is an irreversible act of God which seals them for the day of redemption. And of course I gave you some, some scripture references there but let me just make this really clear. Antichrist cannot deceive the elect of God. Let me tell you why. Because the truth is in them by divine implantation. And we call that regeneration. Mm -hmm. Paul affirms in this context that the elect of God will not be deceived. And he does that in verse 13 and 14. Right after he's done talking about the Antichrist in verse 12, he says this, but we should always give thanks to you. Or in contrast to the deception of those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In contrast to those who uh, took pleasure in wickedness and perished. Right? In, in contrast to them, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's Paul doing? He's pointing to their election by God to, to reaffirm for them that their salvation is firmly fixed in God's providence. And that it is because of God's election that they will ultimately be saved and gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? Paul is reassuring these Christians that they will not succumb to this deceptive power and signs and wonders that are done by the Antichrist. Right in this context. So, however, this deception will be successful against all the non-elect as authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, 7 through 8. Therefore, acting as the ultimate false Christ, he will set himself up in the true covenant where the truth abides and seek to cause apostasy from the true faith and successfully mislead all the professors who are the apostates of the rebellion of 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, who follow his deception. 
All of this will end, of course, in his sudden destruction when Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, verse 8, as he cuts short this great tribulation, period, at the parousia or second coming of Christ, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Okay, I'm going to move on then to verse 5 and following. But I want to stop and ask if there are any questions concerning this person of the Antichrist. Is there anything that I haven't laid out there or that is unclear about what I'm saying about this person or his scope or influence? No? Yes? I actually got one. Um, okay. Uh, when you were uh, referencing in Revelation that Yes. Okay. Well, here's the deal. The, the scope of the authority in Revelation 13, we can turn there and look <coughs> at it if you like. <clears throat> Let's read exactly what it says. It's also at the bottom of page 95. Revelation 13, 5 and following. It, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. Okay, that, that's commonly the second three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, okay? Which is the last three and a half years just prior to the second coming of Christ. And what, what, what the scripture is saying is that the Antichrist is given authority to act or to do his thing, if you will, during that period of time. And then he's going to describe there in Revelation what he does. He speaks with arrogant words and blasphemies, and he opens his mouth and blasphemies against God and against his name and against his people. Verse 7, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So specifically in regard to your question, this text, I think, addresses it. There's two people in view. The, um, every tribe and people and tongue and nation, which in my mind is in contrast to the saints. Okay, which also in the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, there's a contrast between those who perish and those who are saved. There's a contrast between those who took pleasure in wickedness and those who have been chosen by God to receive the glory of our Lord. Right? And this contrast is, is that even though the Antichrist seeks to deceive even the very elect, if it were possible, he is unable to do that. But in so doing, he successfully deceives the whole rest of the world. So that Revelation 13, 8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. And then it identifies who they are who worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So there's a contrast of two people there. Those who are deceived and perish and those who believe and are saved who are, in Revelation 13, the saints of God. And if you will, you can see how closely parallel these texts are in, in Paul's writing about the Antichrist and Revelation 13, this apocalyptic vision that John sees about the Antichrist and what takes place there. 
Did I answer your question? Absolutely. Anybody else? Yes, sir. How do you wage war against the saints? That's a good question. Uh, I've been addressing that over the last couple of weeks, but I think the, uh, I could sum it up by the things I just read. I would like to suggest he will try to twist and pervert the essentials of the Christian faith, a new gospel, an attack on Holy Scripture, a new Christ, and he will successfully deceive those who perish. My point is, he is attacking the gospel. He is attacking the person and the work of Jesus Christ because that is the only truth that saves people. And, and uh, of course, that we, we know that the, the message of God in the current New Covenant age is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which deals with the person and the work of Christ. We are simply preaching a message that all who will believe and trust in the person of Christ for, uh, for their righteousness before God can be saved from, from God's wrath in sin and death, and that they can be given glorified immortal bodies and live with God forever in heaven. And all who reject that message, the gospel declares, will be shut out from the presence of God and destroyed in eternal punishment. And so, if you will, this is the message of salvation that Paul uh, says here in 2 Thessalonians, that they refuse to believe this truth and so be saved. Which, it, it says that he's coming, let me read this for you to, to further answer your question. 2 Thessalonians 2, in the verses we are just about to approach, he says, um, let's read from verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now he's going to start talking about the scope and influence of what the Antichrist does, which I believe is how he wages war against the saints, okay? That is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so the point is, is that we Christians, we're all about the message of the gospel, we're all about preaching the message of the gospel. And the, how do you wage war against Christians? Well, here's what you do. You silence them. You silence them. Well, how do you silence Christians? Well, I take Daniel 8.24 very literally. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. What's going to happen? I think Christian pastors are going to be the target. His first target is going to be those who preach the gospel the loudest. And that's who I think is in view when Daniel says the mighty men. Who he brings up again in chapter 11. He says those who know their God will oppose him and they will do mighty exploits, he says. But even in that context, he is seen overcoming them. And uh, it's, it's really uh, uh, a tragic thing that happens. But here's the deal. What's happening is he is seeking to snuff out every last bit of gospel truth that exists in the world. And as he does that, he literally deceives everybody in the world who has not been born again by the Holy Spirit. And both of these contexts make it very clear that all who do not trust in Christ will be deceived under the work of the Antichrist and perish. And, and not only that, in the context of Revelation 13 further, it says that, um, well, right there in verses uh, 
15 and following, it says that uh, uh, he deceives those, verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given him to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves. Who's that? That's everybody. To be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Here's the deal. The Antichrist is going to deceive the whole world into taking the mark of the beast. And, of course, you read in Revelation 14, you take the mark of the beast, and guess what? That's it. There's no hope of redemption for anyone who takes the mark of the beast. That's the clear and unequivocal statement in Revelation chapter 14. I don't remember the exact verse, but it's there. So there's war against this right there because, yeah. Yeah, so the question was, how do you wage war against the saints? I don't think what's in view is primarily physical harm and persecution, although I do think that's part of it. I think what he is waging war against Mm -hmm. is the message of the gospel and those who preach it. And uh, I think that it's very obvious if somebody's going to come deceive the world concerning salvation that saves, that they have to attack the Christian gospel, which means they have to attack the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And the only faithful place of proclamation of that is the very church of God. So I think what happens is, if you will, he sets himself up in the very visible Christian church, possibly the Pope. Of course, you know, a lot of people have held that position. Okay. Of course, in today's world, we look and we say, well, how can this happen? You've got Islam, you've got Catholicism, you've got Hinduism, you've got Buddhism, you've got all these massive world religions. How are these all going to be brought under one religious system of the Antichrist? I can't tell you that except to say that the scripture says that his signs and wonders will be so powerful that they would even mislead the elect if that were possible and that, that this is all the deception of wickedness and God sends a deluding influence so that they will believe this lie and so that mankind's sin on the earth will come to fruition in utter rejection of the Christian gospel and then the end will come. And this is what Jesus says in in the Olivet Discourse. He says, And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed to all the nations as a testimony, and then the end will come. And Jesus' very next words is, So when you see that abomination of desolation, man, you know the time is near. Because there's going to be a time of great tribulation at that time, such as not occurred from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever shall be. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And it's in the midst of that tribulation period that Jesus is going to return. He's going to destroy the Antichrist and he's going to deliver the Christian church. I say the majority of Christians are still alive. And what has happened is there's been an all-out war by him uh, for those who open their mouth loudly to preach the gospel. So, I think I answered your question. (laughs) And you had one there, Peggy? Okay, well, that's where we're headed. <laughs> so um, the, the next context here is verses 5 through 8. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's verses 5 through 8. Then commenting on verse 5, where Paul says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul is here reminding the Thessalonians of the fact that he discussed these eschatological events uh, with them in the short three or four weeks that he discipled them. I do find it rather remarkable that Paul's discipling in three to four weeks would be so comprehensive that it would include detailed items of eschatology, including a discussion of the aforementioned events and circumstances. This clarifies that the apostle had the second coming as a central theme in his instruction in the church, and that this included discussion of the rapture, the day of the Lord, and the person of the Antichrist. This we know as Paul directly states that this was the case. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? That was a joke. <laughs> I got a few laughs. Out of it. <laughs> I always get it. I always think it's funny when you have these cute little female angels. <laughs> you know, with the little figurines, you know. Yeah. Or wherever they are in the painting or whatever. Yeah. And did you know there's no female angels in the Bible? Yeah. Oh, yeah. trivia. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyway, the, the point of the matter is, that was my joke. I, I thought everybody would laugh. So that was, that was uh, <laughs> uh, this indicates that it is not some impersonal force, but it is at a very minimum represented by a person. The exact identity of this restrainer is not clearly identified in this book and has been in dispute since this book has been written. The silence about this matter therefore speaks a loud word as to our speculations and my own opinion is that it is important but not disclosed in scripture and therefore not something of vital importance for understanding the main point and theme of our text. Okay, that's my position about the restrainer. Okay, I mean, I can speculate. I can tell you where I lean, okay? I lean toward the work of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. Right. Uh, and I think what Paul is making an allusion to is Matthew 24, 14. Okay? That's my thought. Um, which is very similar, frankly, to the dispensational view, which they would say that it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church and that what will happen is the church will be raptured before the 70th week of Daniel starts and so will the influence of the church um, in the world and that this is the restraining force, this Holy Spirit that is in the church in the world. And, um, of course, in the dispensational view, then, there is also 144,000 Jewish evangelists who get anointed who go out and preach the gospel during the tribulation period and that there is a great revival that uh, happens as a result of their preaching, okay? Even though... All of that is an implication on the text because Revelation 7 doesn't say anything about those Jews being evangelists. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say anything specifically about uh, any kind of scope or influence of their ministry or what happens as a result of it. In fact, it doesn't even say they have a ministry. Um, so, but we're not studying Revelation 7. Um, but you can go read that and you can see if what I just told you about that text is true. So, this restrainer, 
uh, what is very clear is that the Antichrist is being restrained by some powerful personage until he is taken out of the way. That powerful restrainer is the sure command of God's providence in order for God's purpose with Antichrist to be accomplished so that in his time he will be revealed. The background of this time of restraint is the fact that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, setting the stage for the revealing of this evil worker. So here's the idea that this Antichrist is being restrained in the providence of God by some powerful restrainer who is a male and that there's going to be a proper time for him to be revealed. There's going to be a proper time for him to come forth. And we know this timing is very precise. The scope and the influence of his authority is 42 months, three and a half years, a time times and half a time. And of course, we understand that that is inaugurated at the abomination of desolation, which Daniel 9.27 tells us is right in the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, which leaves three and a half years for that to take place, which is commonly what we all say is the great tribulation period. It's that last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel and the last three and a half years before the second coming of Christ. You with me? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Near the bottom of 97. This is a profound thought in light of who he is and what he will accomplish as outlined in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, in Daniel's prophecies, and in the book of Revelation. This beast of Revelation 13 will receive power from God to garner the worship of the whole world. Listen, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world while this guy's being restrained. And what's that power of lawlessness doing in the world? And am I... My thought is, is that it's setting the stage, which we can all clearly, all of us who are students of these things can all clearly see the world moving in this direction, right? right? A lot of dispensational guys will read their newspaper and their Bible side by side, telling you what's going on in the world and how it fits with biblical prophecy. Jack Van Impey, man, he's famous for that, right? He's got even sitting at like a news counter when he's, when he's teaching you, right? And he's going through, man, he's, he's quoting off, he's the fastest scripture quoter on earth. You ever seen Jack Van Impey? <laughs> he, uh, you know, and, and he's, he's just going to town, telling you how all these world events are, are, are uh, you know, fulfilling Bible prophecy. And uh, can't fault him for, for uh, believing that the Bible is true, amen, and that what it says is going to happen. Um, and I certainly don't mean to mention him in a mocking sense. I, I'm not doing that at all. I, I, I highly respect him. Uh, but um, nevertheless, I don't agree with a lot of things he teaches, but... Uh, <coughs> then verse 6. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Well, think about this. And you know what restrains him now. And you know. So who's the restrainer? Somebody tell me. God? Holy Spirit? Gospel? All of the 
above. All of the above. <laughs> Anybody else? How about the Roman Empire? How about the civil rule of law that's in the world? Now restraining evil. How about uh, Michael the Archangel? <laughs> Come on. You know and you know. Right? No, no, no. The Thessalonians knew. Why? Because Paul was telling them these things. Right? But you and I are still asking questions about it. How come? Because we don't know. Right? It certainly doesn't appear to be really clear. And let me tell you, I've been studying these things for a long time. I've spent a lot of time reading a lot of things and memorizing scripture about all of these things. And I have to tell you, I don't know who the restrainer is. I have a hunch, right? <laughs> but I'm telling you this, it's not clear in scripture. And as you read the commentators, they're all arguing about it. Why? Because it's not clear in scripture. Okay. Of course, commentators argue about things that are clear in scripture too. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But uh, <clears throat> let, me, let me read on here. Top of page 97. When Paul makes the statement, and you know what restrains him now. By the way, there's a big controversy about where the now goes. Some translations say, and you, and you now know what restrains him. Whereas in the NASU, it says, and you know what restrains him now. So is it what's restraining him now, or is it that you now know? You see? There's an argument about that, by the way. I, of course, I had to tell you that. that. had to give you all the... All right? He asserts that it is clear to them what is restraining power is. It's clear to them, right? The subject of this restraining power is obviously the man of lawlessness himself. So in other words, who's being restrained? The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Antichrist. And this accords with the fact that he is now hidden from sight, but yet will be revealed at the proper time, as verse 3 states, and also here, so that in his time he will be revealed. So here's the idea. He's being restrained now until when? Until he's revealed. Until he's clearly seen. So the idea is right now he's hidden from sight. And this restraining power is keeping him back from his authority to act for 42 months. He's being held back. He's being held down. He's not in clear sight. He's being restrained. But there's going to come a time when he's going to be revealed. He's going to be released and he's going to be allowed to perform his work, which God has decreed that he should carry out. Okay? Uh, we go on. Note well that Antichrist is restrained by some power until the proper time allotted by God's sovereign providence so that at the right time in history he will be unrestrained to accomplish God's sovereign will in bringing this age into its climax and a certain end. In regard to this restrainer, many have commented on what it is such as the Roman Empire, the common civil order of law in the world, the Jewish state... <coughs> Satan or one of his evil agents, some holy angel such as Michael the archangel, or even the Holy Spirit himself, or some related work of the Holy Spirit such as the preaching of the gospel to all nations. By the way, I, I read commentators who put forth almost every one of those views. 
The only one I didn't read a comment on was the Jewish state. I, I, didn't, I didn't find that, but somebody was commenting that somebody held that view. Regardless of the point, there's been all these views about who this restrainer is, okay? And these commentators, they're not uh, too shy about telling you what they think. Whatever the restrainer is, it is surely a personal being. For it is referred to in the following verse with a personal pronoun when Paul states, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So here's something I'm saying very clear about the restrainer, okay? It is a personage, mm -hmm. which means it's either a man or an angel or God. Okay, three kinds of beings in the world. <laughs> okay. Um, and that this personage is male. He's male. Okay. By the way, Michael the archangel, he's a man. He's a, he's a male. <laughs> he's a male. Okay. But I'm just telling you that I'm not mocking the man of God. I hold him in love and in high esteem. Okay. This uh, beast of Revelation 13 will receive power from God to garner the worship of the whole world and set up a religious and economic system of idolatry that will deceive all the nations of the earth. The scope of this character and his influence in the world is unprecedented by any other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And these ideas show the importance of the mystery of lawlessness being already at work in the world in order to allow sin and evil to run its course and to set the stage for the amazing deception that will occur under this man's influence. Here's what I'm saying. Of all the men who have lived on the earth, there is not another man who has a scope and influence of the power of this Antichrist except for the Lord Jesus himself. That's who this guy is. And let me tell you something, the events that surround him are the things that are going to bring this age to an end. When he shows up, man, you better flee. That's what Jesus says. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. If you're on the roof, don't go back down inside and get your coat. You know what he means by that, right? He means, man, hit the ground running. That's what he means. You, you understand his point. Okay, we're ending here. When the stage has been set and mankind has shown himself to fully reject the gospel that has been preached for a witness to all the nations, then the end shall come. And then, verse 8 states, that lawless one will be revealed. Notice the striking parallel between that and Matthew 24, verse 14. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our God and Father, we, we look at these things that are coming upon the world with amazement. And Lord, I pray that you would speak very loudly to us by your Spirit with these texts of Scripture. Lord, that as you have said through the mouth of our Lord and through the apostles, that you don't want us to be deceived concerning these events of the end time. And that you have given us very clear instruction that these days we live in are days of deception. And that, Lord, there's been so much teaching about these things. I pray that we would be diligent students of these things and that, Lord, we would not be deceived concerning these things, but that we would have clear 
and simple understanding of the things that you have set forth for us in your word. And I pray that you would guide us by your spirit to clearly understand. And when a Bible teacher stands up and makes statements about these scriptures, I pray that you would cause us to diligently look in the scripture to see if what is being said is true. And let us cling only to what your holy word says, God. And let us have our faith firmly planted in holy writ. And let us be looking to the blessed hope, even the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will deliver us from all these things and take us to be where he is. We honor you and we praise you for the great hope that we have in him. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.